0: 1 John chapter 5. We continue our study through the book of 1 John. We are getting closer to the end. It means we should be done in about two years. First John 5. Pastor Justin talked about last week, the beginning of chapter 5, he talked about this idea that our decision to follow Jesus, it changes us. We've been birthed anew. And by yoking in with Jesus, who now lives inside of us, we overcome the world, right? We walk in love. We walk in obedience. And and it's not a burden because Jesus is the one doing the heavy lifting, right? That awesome life is possible because Jesus is a real person. He's not a figment. He's not an idea. He's a real person, when someone says your name," they're referencing a real and unique individual that can't be anyone else. You're not an idea, you're not, you're not a concept, you're a person. Oh, they might misname you, or their impression of you might be completely wrong. But none of that changes the fact that you're a unique individual, a real person. And so who is this person called Jesus, the Son of God that we close verse 5 with? Well, John answers that by giving us God's personal testimony. So, we're going to pick up in verse 6. I'm going to read verses 4 and 5 for context. First, John 5 verse 4, it says, "...for whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcomes the world? But he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God." This is He, Jesus, the Son of God, that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. John starts off in verse 6 after saying, who is the one that overcomes the world? It's the one that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So who is the Son of God? Who is Jesus? He says, this is he. This one, the Son of God, is also the one who came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. Listen, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, prior to His incarnation, would be wholly unfamiliar to all of us. If we were our first time to have heard about or met Jesus, was Him in all of His glory before His incarnation, we would not recognize Him. Oh, We would see see hints of Him in the Old Testament, but I doubt most of us would recognize Him unless the incarnation occurred. When we think about Jesus, we think about Him living as a man, the three and a half years of His ministry that are recorded in the Gospels. And so by using this phrase, this one, the one who's the Son of God, is this too. By doing that, John is identifying the person that all of us are more familiar with. And so, while genuine Christians believe that Jesus is the Son of God, John connects that belief to the humanity of Christ that is more recognizable to us. This one is the one that came by water and by blood. That phrase, that came, remember the Bible's not written in English, it's written in a different language. In the original language, it's an aorist participle, which describes something that is a definite fact in history. This one, the Son of God, well, He's the one that came. There was a, a fact of history, a time when Jesus came into the world. The incarnation, the idea of God becoming a man, it's not a metaphor. It's not an idea. It's not a concept. Jesus isn't one of many people who have been anointed by a Christ power over the centuries. Jesus is the Son of God from all eternity who stepped into time by becoming a man. And why did Jesus become a man? To accomplish something we could not do for ourselves. Now, to accomplish what we could not do for ourselves required him to identify with us. And John tells us that Jesus identified with us in two ways. He came by water and by blood. Now, if you try to figure out and go, what in the world does that mean, you will find lots of explanations if you start doing research of what John meant by the water and by the blood, I personally find it interesting that John just says it and offers no explanation. He says it as if his readers back then knew exactly what he was talking about, which means early believers probably did know what he was talking about. When they heard the letter read to them, they said, oh yeah, Jesus came by water and blood. They knew exactly what he's talking about. That is a problem for us, though, because we don't know what he's talking about. That's not a phrase we use today. So we have a difficulty because we are 2,000 years removed from John's words. Now, some might say, well, times are different now. Why why does it matter what John or anyone else said 2,000 years ago? Why is that important? Well, it matters because you and I have not seen Jesus. If you claim to have seen Jesus, we have some exorcists in the lobby and they'll help you out. No, I'm just kidding. The idea is we were not there. The whole reason this thing called Christianity exists is because there was a real Jesus who had real followers, and those real followers told others about the real Jesus. That's why Christianity exists. We believe today because others believed and passed their message down to us. There is no Christianity without their testimony. There is no other way to know who the real Jesus was, and what the real Jesus did, and what the real Jesus wants us to do, unless we're going to make it all up. If we don't have these eyewitness testimonies. Now, what's interesting is Jesus addressed this very topic before He died. Look at John 17 with me. Now, I have to apologize because we are going to look at a reference a lot of verses today. Um, We always post the verses I reference, so if you miss one, um, when you can go look online and you can get a list of the verses that I referenced, but there will be a lot of references this morning. We don't usually do a ton of that. We try to usually stay within our context. But Jesus in John 17, many times this is called Jesus' high priestly prayer. his prayer right before he goes to the cross. And first he prays for himself, then he prays for his disciples who are there with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. But then in verse 20, he prays for another group. John 17, 20, Jesus says, "'Neither pray I for these alone,' his disciples.' but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Do you see that? Jesus was praying for you and me, those of us who would believe on Jesus because of what they said, their testimony. And what did Jesus pray? That they all may be one, that we might all be on the same page. We all would be unified in what we're saying about God and what we're saying about Jesus. That's important. You see, we can't just say, well, culture's different now. It's 2,000 years later. Times have changed. Our, our view of family or church or right and wrong or salvation, like how to get to heaven, it's, it's, it can't be the same. Times have changed. Doesn't matter if times have changed. Culture can change, people's viewpoints can change. But Jesus himself prayed, Father, my prayer, my request, my desire is that those who believe, the testimony of those who are with me right now, they'll all be on the same page. That's what he prayed for. So if, if we're going to call ourselves Christians, followers of Christ, what he said and how he looks at things cannot be changed. They have to stay the same. And his desire was, they, are, they all may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. We're going to look at this later in 1 John 5 about how much there is agreement within the Godhead, in the, in, in the triune Godhead. But the idea here is that in the same way that they're all in agreement, the Lord wants us to be in agreement. He says, "I the, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us. Why? That the world may believe you have sent me. If the church or different churches are going to decide and go, well, we're going to decide to change what the Bible says, or we're not going to do what the Bible says, we're going to change our view on how we look at Anything, you can put it out there, family, marriage, gender, church leadership, right and wrong, salvation, any topic you want to throw out there, we're going to change it because the culture's changed, times have changed, things were different back then than they are now, then Jesus is saying the part of why that needs to stay the same is so the world may believe that you sent me. They're not going to believe in Jesus. They're going to believe in something else, maybe a church organization, maybe an ideology, maybe a political quest, but they're not going to believe in the Son of God. The way that they're going to know Jesus is through us maintaining the truth, the message. Everything that we've been talking about in 1 John, God's great love for us and the assurance that we are saved and we're His forever, the joy that comes from deepening our relationship with Jesus. Jesus prayed that we would experience that. He prayed that we would be in unity with the disciples' testimony, and their testimony is found in the Bible. So it matters. It's why we study it. It's why we spend so much time here, and we place such emphasis here at Calvary Chapel Orlando on studying the Bible, on teaching it in our services. Because if we're going to know the real Jesus, we need to know his words to us. So that still doesn't answer what the water and the blood is. It just explains why we need to know. So how do we bridge this 2,000-year gap on what John meant by the water and the blood? Well, one way is to find people who were closer to the target. We're 2,000 years removed, but what did people believe about what John meant who are closer to the time when he wrote it? Well, the oldest viewpoint is that the water represents Jesus' baptism and the blood represents the cross. And while that, it does make me wonder, why didn't John just say that? I can see why they thought that way. Uh, in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, when Jesus was being baptized, we see an interesting exchange between Jesus and John the Baptist. It says, in Matthew 3, 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized by him, but John forbade him I always wonder what that was like, you know, because like if you're in a family setting, you know, or you're out in public, you know, you don't tend to be like, hey, what are you doing here? You're, you're not supposed to be here. You don't need to be baptized. You, you kind of, you know, you, you nudge them or you give them the eye. And I don't know. Like if you see Jesus coming down, he's like, no, 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 no. I, I don't know. He forbade him. But then as Jesus got closer, he says to him, I need to be baptized by you and you're coming to me. That doesn't make any sense. And then Jesus explained. Jesus answering said unto him, suffer it to be so No, Let's do this. Why? For thus it becomes, it's necessary for us to fulfill all righteousness. God has requirements and I need to fulfill them. In other words, Jesus, He didn't need to repent of sin, as baptism symbolizes. He didn't need to do a ritual to profess a new direction for His life. But His words in verse 15 show that He was identifying with us in His baptism. This is what God requires of all men, that they would turn from their sins and follow Me. And I need to fulfill all God's righteous requirements so that I can be qualified as a man. He's qualified already as the Son of God, but He didn't come to do this as the Son of God. He came to do it as the Son of Man and so that He could be the perfect man who could take our place on the cross. He identified with us in his baptism. We look in 1 Peter 2, verses uh, 21 through 24, and Peter tells us he also identified with us in the cross. In 1 Peter 2, verse 22, it talks about Jesus who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, and it explains an example of how he didn't sin. When he was reviled, he did not revile back. You know, when he was insulted or mistreated, he didn't mistreat or insult back. When he suffered, he didn't threaten people, and he could have. He's the son of God. He's the creator of the universe. He could have said, you know what? I'm done. And he could have backed it up. But instead, he committed himself to him that judges righteously. We are all supposed to live that way. When someone insults us, we're not supposed to insult them back. When they mistreat us, we're not supposed to mistreat them back. We're supposed to commit ourselves to God who's going to, he'll right every wrong eventually, and we trust him and say, Lord, you're going to take care of me. I'm going to love this person just like you do. Jesus did all that. Who, his own self, bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Christ identified with us, but he never sinned. And because he who did not deserve death took our place, we can now identify with him and receive his righteousness. That's the whole point of the gospel. That's, That's the good news. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, but there is a righteousness revealed from God that's not according to the law, but it's according to faith in Christ. We can now be right with God. We can be holy and clean before him. We can be forgiven by placing our trust in Christ and his sacrifice for us on the cross. He identified with us in his baptism. He identified with us in the cross so that we can now identify with him who is pure and sinless and holy. Now, while that makes sense, and this is how most in the early days of the church understood John's words, I would propose, amongst lots of other explanations people have given that most of them I think don't make sense, I would propose one other viable alternative, and it's this. John used this phrase, coming by water, before. Look at John chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Again, a little context here. This, these words of Jesus come when he's having a conversation with a, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, he comes to him at night because he doesn't want to get in trouble with the other religious leaders. And he, he says, listen, teacher, we know no one can do what you're doing unless you come from God. But he's like, explain what's going on here. Why are you? You know, the idea is he's clearly wanting some explanation of why are you opposed to the religious leaders? Like, wh- why are we at such odds here? And Jesus just tested him. He goes, listen, man. (laughs) I mean, he didn't say, listen, man. (laughs) He said, verily, verily. He said, truly, truly. He said, what I'm I'm about to tell you is is 100% true. Except a man be born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Cuts right through all the political nonsense. And he goes, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus knew what it meant to be born again. That's an idea that was used by the Jewish people. They, they would, that's what they would describe when a Gentile was converting to Judaism, and they'd get baptized. And, and so, to, to prove the fact that now their old life, Gentile life was dead, now they're following Jehovah, the one true God. He knew what that meant, but he thought, well, Jews don't need to do that. We're already God's people. We're already saved. So Jesus explains to him, he you were born a Jew? You are born an Israelite? true. He says, truly, truly, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And then Jesus explains what each of those is. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Born of water is being physically born. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. He's talking about physical birth and spiritual birth. So, I'm inclined to believe that since John has already used this phrase, being coming by water to refer to physical birth, that it makes the most sense to me that he's going to use it the same way in all of his writings. And so I think the water refers to Christ's birth and the blood to Christ's death, because those are the bookend events of every human life. John could be saying that Jesus fully identified with us, you know, in his baptism and his death on the cross, but but that's not fully identifying with us. However, he did fully identify with us because he's lived every stage of life you and I could live. He was born as a babe. He grew up as a kid. He was an adolescent. And then he was an adult. And so, I think it makes the most sense to me that John is saying that Jesus fully identified with us because he didn't skip anything we need to go through. Now, think about the significance of that for just a moment. God the Son, the one who existed from all eternity and flung the universe into existence... Jesus, the Messiah, the promised King who came to rule and reign, He didn't skip any part of humanity. That's because He fully identifies with what you and I go through. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 tells us that we have a high priest who, He can be, He can be sympathized with what it feels like to be weak. He can sympathize with our struggles because He was tempted in every way that we are, yet He never sinned. Jesus understands. He can identify with you and me. And then, not only did He identify with us in life, but that same eternal God and rightful King tasted death for all of us. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, the writer says, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that He, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. If you keep reading, it mentions he tasted death for all of us. He, he identified with us in life and in death, and He's not ashamed to call us brethren. Isn't that awesome? I believe this is a simpler understanding. I think it's consistent with what John has with John, already said in the Gospels. But if you want to go with baptism, that's fine too, because either way, John's point is the same. Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, identified with us, not just by His life, but also by His death. Now, no testimony holds up with just one witness, so John gives us another here at the end of verse 6. 1 John 5, 6, he says, and it is the Spirit that bears witness because the Spirit is truth. Now, the phrase here, bear witness, it means to provide information about a person of which you have direct knowledge. I could provide information about some things, but only certain things are from direct knowledge. The Holy Spirit knows Jesus intimately, personally. So, He can give direct knowledge about Him. He can can give a testimony about Him that comes from direct contact with Him. Now, what is the testimony? Well, this is, again, in the original language, a present participle, which means it's not something the Holy Spirit did in the past. It's something He's currently doing and something He will continue to do. So, what information does the Holy Spirit continually provide about Jesus? Jesus. Well, two kinds of information. Number one, everything he teaches us from the Scripture. In John chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, Jesus says, I'm going away, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, and he will guide you into all truth. He will teach you and explain to you the things that I've said to you, and he'll bring them to your remembrance. Maybe you've experienced this before. I'm teaching. Well, let me, let me phrase it. I've experienced this before or I've had people come through my line and they said, Pastor Will, thank you so much for that message. It really encouraged me. In fact, the part that encouraged me the most is when you said this. And I'll think to myself, I didn't say that. But it's happened so many times, I know what's going on. What's going on is this, and you probably experienced it. I'm talking, I hit on something, and now the Holy Spirit starts teaching you. He starts bringing it directly to what's going on in your life, and now you're looking at a different verse and a different verse and a different verse, and you got your own little Bible study going on while I'm rambling, and the Holy Spirit's teaching you. Right? You've experienced that. You know what that's like. This is the regular thing the Holy Spirit does with us. I'm not saying he does it every Sunday, but I'm saying, though, this is something he's still doing. It's not just something he did in the past. It's something he's still doing. He does it when you open your Bible at home, when you go out on your porch, or you're sitting at the table, and you read your Bible, and now he starts speaking to you. And when my kids, they tell me, they would tell me when they're little, said, God doesn't talk to me. I said, let me ask you a question. I said, you remember when you you didn't clean your room, and you went and you were out playing? Yeah. I said, did you hear a voice telling you you need to clean your room? well, yeah, that was God talking to you. <laughs> the Holy Spirit, He convicts us, He teaches us, He encourages us, particularly when we open God's Word. Everything that He teaches us from Scripture, that's His continual testimony of Jesus. But the second way that the kind of information the Holy Spirit continually provides about Jesus to us is very practical. It's everything He's doing in us and through us. There's an interesting verse, Acts chapter 5, verse 32, when the disciples were on trial, the religious leaders had arrested them, told them, stop talking about Jesus, stop making people feel better in Jesus' name. We laugh. There are people who are angry that you even talk about healing now. They're angry. You say, well, nothing's wrong with people if, if they have an illness or a sickness or a disease or some type of disability and stuff. I mean, you shouldn't diminish them by saying they need to be, be helped. Really? That's what we've come to? That's how hard our hearts have become against the Lord? I didn't think that when I was a knucklehead college student and jumped off my top bunk and shattered the bottom of my foot. I was in so much pain I couldn't walk that I almost lost my job. I wouldn't be able to pay for my schooling. I remember I saw multiple doctors and like, there's nothing we can do. That part of your body, it just needs to heal, and it's not healing I'm going to be like this for the rest of my life unless it heals. Yeah. I remember being in a little tiny, we called it a, a koinonia meeting. It was on Tuesday nights, and we'd have a time where someone would do a small teaching, and then we have a time of worship and just prayer. A lot of like what we do at our night of prayer, our monthly night of prayer. We just wait on the Lord and, and give opportunity for the Holy Spirit to work. And I remember the guy said, listen, if you, if you want to be, come prayed for, for to be healed, come on up, and we'll anoint you with oil. We'll pray for you in obedience to God's Word and we sitting there going, Lord, I, I I don't want to lose my job. I, I can't work, though. I can't stand. I can't stay on my feet. And the Lord said, go up. I'm going to heal you. I felt like he said that in my heart. I walked up and woke up the next day, and it was gone. I remember my, my son, my oldest son, when he had this raging fever, and we we're going to take him to the hospital, and I just felt like the Lord said, just before you go, just pray for him. I, I want to heal him. And I was like, Okay. So me and Bev, we laid our hands on Joel and we prayed for him and fever was gone like that. Does that always happen? No, because God has plans and purposes for the things that we go through sometimes. There is a suffering according to the will of God, Peter tells us. But God still heals. They said here as they healed this man, they were told not to do it. They said, as they're defending, saying, we're going to continue doing this, and we're explaining to why it's happening, it's because Jesus is alive, He rose from the dead, and He's working through us. And they said in Acts 5.32, we are His witnesses of these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to them who obey Him. What you're seeing happen through us is evidence that Jesus is alive, that He's not dead. So, The information that the Holy Spirit's continually providing about Jesus is not just everything He teaches us from Scripture, but it's everything He does in and through us. Think about it just for a minute. Do you, if you're a Christian today, do you always, did you always believe what you believe now? No. Did you always have the attitudes and behavior you have now? No. Of course, there's still room to grow. For some of us, a lot of room to grow, like me. But we have changed Our convictions are different. Our goals are different. Our approach is different. And yes, our actions are different. And those changes in your life and my life are evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. Because none of those changes came about because you decided to do better. It's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus promised us. I remember when I had my first job, I was working at Taco Bell, and I had a boss there, and he was a grumpy, grumpy atheist. You could, he's no happy atheist. He was a grumpy atheist. <clears throat> and everything was always a downer. And so I'm, I'm sharing the Lord with my coworkers or whatever. I mean, i lull, and I'm just talking about the Lord and, and, uh, and having a good conversation. He comes walking up, and he just decides to step all over it. And he's like, ah, you know, you're talking about that God. You know, I believe in unicorns and, you know, and, you know puppies that fly and stuff like that. And, and uh, we'll call him Bob. I said, Bob, I said, I don't believe in fluffy puppies that fly and all that kind of stuff. I said, but I, I know that Jesus is real. I know that the Lord's real because he's changed my life. I asked him, I said, do you think I'm a good worker? He's like, yeah, man, you work hard. I said, do you think you trust me? I mean, you think I have a good character? He's like, oh yeah. He's like, I love having you here. I'm glad you're part of the team. I said, great. That's awesome. I'm glad to hear that. I said, I want, I, want to have, I, want to, I want to be that kind of worker. I said, but the reason I want to be that kind of worker is because Jesus changed me. He's like, what do you mean? I explained to him. I said. And not what do you mean like curious, but like, what do you mean? What are you talking about? I said, because this is not who I was a couple years ago before I got saved. I said, I didn't care about any of those things before I got saved. I was selfish. All I cared about was what I wanted to do. He's like, well, you decided to do better. And I said, that's impossible. I said, because I never wanted to do better. Jesus is the one who wanted to do better. And he started changing me. None of this came about because you decided to do better. It's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus promised. And you can trust that work of the Holy Spirit because John says, and it is the Spirit that bears witness because the Spirit is truth, or literally the Spirit is the truth. He's real, and He's right. He knows all things, and He's going to guide us into all truth. We can trust Him. Well, how can you and I know that the Holy Spirit is truth? Well, because He's part of the Godhead. He doesn't lie. Verse 7, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Now, some of you this morning likely have Bibles that read different from what I just read. In fact, if you don't have a King James Bible or a New King James Bible, verse 7 will only say something along the line of, for there are three that testify, or there are three witnesses, and then it'll go right to verse 8. The reason for that is because, remember, the Bible wasn't written in English. There, this is a translation. And there are no, there are zero Greek manuscripts in the first 1,000 years of the church that include this verse. Greek is the, the original language of the New Testament. Now, it does this verse does appear in fullness in Latin versions as early as the 4th century. It's quoted as having been written by John, by Priscillian of Avila in the 4th century, and also likely by Cyprian in the 3rd century. In addition to that, some of the men involved in the work of the first English translations of the New Testament that eventually gave us a King James Bible, they referenced Greek manuscripts that include this verse. We, they're no longer functional. We don't have access to them. They deteriorated too much. Now, this is an interesting debate on whether the rest of these words belong. They were actually, John wrote them. I don't want to spend too much time on it this morning, to be honest, but I want to give you a few warnings if you do your own research. First off, those who argue for this verse to be removed, they quote a guy named Bruce Metzger. He's the late New Testament scholar from the University of Princeton. Um, He's a textual critic who did not believe in biblical inspiration like you and I do. So just be aware that if you're going to jump on that bandwagon, you're siding with a lot of folks who don't have the same viewpoint you do regarding the authority of the Scripture. Secondly… If you wait into this debate, you're gonna encounter a lot of what we call King James only people. Many King James only defenders that that's the only Bible you should use, you shouldn't use any other Bible. They use this verse as a reason to be King James only. Now, you might say, Well, Pastor Will, you use the King James Bible. I do. I'm not King James only. While I use a King James Bible, and while I personally believe it's the best modern English translation, I do not believe it's the only good translation. It's not the position of our church, if you have a different Bible. There are tons of good modern English translations done by wonderful translators that are out there, all right? But I I don't believe that. If you are a King James-only person, I'm sorry to disappoint you, we are never changing that view, all right? The Bible was not written in English. No English, no translations of English. The process of translation, none of that was inspired like the original words were inspired. So, do we have reliable translations? Translations? Yes, we do. But it's the original words that were inspired, not some guys who got in a room and decided to translate it into a different language. Which is why it's important to study. So I have far greater reason for using the King James Bible than the fact that this verse is in it. So if you ever want to talk about that, I'd be happy to. But it's not that important. Thirdly, the most important part about this debate, the doctrine of the Trinity does not stand or fall on whether these words are in the Bible or not. The doctrine of the triune God is all over the rest of Scripture. And to be honest, proving the Trinity is not John's point here of this passage anyway. John's purpose is different. Now, what do I think? I lean towards it belonging in the Bible. Why? Because the first words of verse 7 are in all the manuscripts, which is an important factor. The phrase here, for there are three that bear record, they're all, the the phrase bear record is a masculine gendered participle. We don't have, if you have ever learned a foreign language, you may know that like you can't mix and match in a lot of languages gender, right? Like if you use a verb, the noun needs to correspond. Otherwise, you're talking of the verb applies to some other noun that corresponds with it. That's how Greek works. That's how biblical Greek works. So When we look at the words water, blood, and spirit in verse 6 and verse 8, they're all neuter gendered. They're not masculine gendered. So in Greek, you can't say this means the water, the blood, and the spirit if the gender of the words don't agree. In contrast, the word father and the word word referring to Jesus in verse 7, they are masculine. There are no other masculine references before verse 7 or after verse 7 that could apply. Therefore, It's why your Bible, if you have a non-King James Bible, it probably reads the way it does. If you remove the rest of this verse from the Bible, it's like John says, oh, and there are three witnesses. But then he kind of loses his train of thought, shrugs and goes, okay, verse 8. So I tend to believe they're probably there. Because if we leave the rest of the words in, then the sentence now makes sense. Why can we trust the Holy Spirit? Well, because He's a member of the Godhead and all of the members of the Godhead agree in everything they say because that's what heaven's like. I mean, look at our world here. You can't get many people to agree on anything and then they want to fight about it. We are, we are so angsty and so angry and so, so, to be blunt, hateful. But not like that in heaven. A place that we cannot see but a place where all is done as God wants. It's a place where only truth exists. In Matthew 6.10, Jesus prayed, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Everything's the way God wants it to be in heaven. It's perfect. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 27, it tells us that in heaven there's no one that loves or makes a lie. Can you imagine what that would be like? You don't have to worry. Like, I have to worry anytime I read anything on the internet, I have to wonder if it's true. Because everything is a snapshot. And anytime you take a snapshot, you're leaving out what's around the snapshot. And all too frequently, people are taking a snapshot because they want to steer the conversation. It's not like that in heaven. Amen, right? I don't have to worry about it. Is what he's saying true? No one who loves or makes a lie is there. And they are all one. They all exist as one. They're all on the same page. Again, we don't need this verse to know that there's a triune God. John 10.30 already proves that Jesus and the Father are one. And when Jesus said, I and my Father are one. John's point here is that the most important voices in heaven are all in agreement about who Jesus is. And since there can be no lie in heaven, we can also trust the Spirit's testimony on earth. Verse 8. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. Jesus' life, His death, and the work of the Holy Spirit that's still ongoing, they all agree in one. What does that mean? It means they're all extending towards the same goal. They're all reaching for the same finish line. And what's their goal? To prove to us that the Jesus who lived on earth is the Son of God from heaven That the person we are familiar with, that we read about in the Bible, is indeed the pre-existing creator of the universe. And why does that matter? Why is that so important? Because if Jesus was just a teacher, or a good man, or an example, or an idea, trusting in a mere man isn't going to be enough to give you a victory that overcomes the world. Trusting in a mere man isn't going to be enough to enable you to love others and to obey God. And if Jesus is just a beer man, then his promise to come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, is a promise he cannot fulfill. Being a Christian is a burden at that point in time. But because Jesus is the Son of God, he's able to live inside of us. He's able to live through us. Jesus' life, his death, and the work of the Holy Spirit That should be enough to convince us, because that would be plenty of evidence in any other situation. Look at verse 9. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. Remember, you could say an if-then statement in the Greek language, four different kinds of ways. And this is the one of reality. So normally, the if can be translated since. Since we receive the testimony of men, well, the witness of God is greater. If three people were to come to you and collaborate a situation. Did you see the bat on Friday night? Yeah, I saw the bat. He was flying back and forth. Is there really a bat in the church on Friday night? Yep, I saw him. Did you see him? Yeah, I saw him too. You go, I guess there was a bat. Some of you are going, is there a bat now? I don't know. (laughs) I hope not. But generally, if you hear three people collaborating something, you'd go, well, that's probably true. The word they receive means to accept and behave as true. We're going to act as if what they said was true. So, if that's the case, we do that here on earth with people, well, God's testimony is greater. It's more important of higher status. Listen, men can lie. Three people could conspire to give an untrue testimony. But even then, generally speaking, if we get three people to confirm something, we accept it. Here's the flip side. Even even the most truthful and sincere person doesn't know everything and therefore can be mistaken. God does know everything. He cannot be mistaken. What He says about something should weigh more to you and me or any other person. Therefore, we should accept His testimony and behave accordingly. What is God's testimony? Verse 9, for this is the witness of God, which He has testified of His Son. Now, at first read, you go, that's not the answer. Like, it just tells us he, He had one. But I think that's John's point. The phrase has testified is in the perfect tense, which means it's a past act on record that you can still read in the present day. So, what did God say about Jesus that we have on record that we can still all read today? Turn to Matthew 3 with me. Matthew 3. We read verses 13 through 15, Jesus' baptism after Jesus explained, then John allowed him to get baptized. And Jesus, Matthew three sixteen, when he was baptized, he went up straightway out of the water and lo, the heavens were opened unto him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and also lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Look at Matthew 17, verse five, a later time in Jesus's life. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John are up on the mountain, and Jesus is transfigured. They got to seek Him with that glory He had before He became a man. They got to see Him in His pre-incarnate state. And then Moses and Elijah come and they start talking to him. And Peter's thinking, this is awesome. He's like, this is it. This is where we get it started. Let's build three tents, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for you, Jesus. And then we can start the campaign. We can start to make the world a better place again. We can fix everything. Let's go. And while Peter's saying all this, the Lord interrupts him. He says, a cloud came Uh, It says, uh, uh, a cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud, while Peter was still speaking, said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Peter, stop talking. Your whole plan, that's not my plan. Listen to Jesus, because this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. One more. John chapter 12, right before Jesus went to the cross. Jesus has just ridden into Jerusalem, the triumphant entry that we celebrate on uh, Palm Sunday. He's cleansed the temple. In John 12, 23, Jesus knows the cross is right around the corner, just a few days away. And he says, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Lord, I'm coming back home. I'm going to rise, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise from the dead. So, Father, verse 28, glorify your name. God, let's do this. This was the whole plan from the beginning. Let's do it. Let's finish it. And as Jesus says, Father, glorify your name, then there came a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And the people, therefore, that stood by and heard it, they said that it thundered. And others said, well, no, an angel spoke to him. But Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me. I didn't need to hear God say that. It came for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. I'm going to deal with the enemy. I'm going to deal with your sin. And when I, if I be lifted up from the earth, crucified, I will draw all men unto me. But this was said. You heard God's voice, God's testimony, because it was you who needed to hear it. God the Father did this for our benefit. So we would have a record of his thoughts on Jesus, What are God's thoughts on Jesus? Well, they're clear. This is my son. This is my son. This is the one I've loved for all eternity past, and I still love him now. What he does brings me pleasure, so you must listen to him. Why do we trust in Jesus? Because this book, this very old book, is the record of everything important that we need to know about him, And God is not going to change his mind on what he thinks about his son just because 2,000 years have gone by. He isn't. I don't care how much the culture changes. I don't care how much opinions change. I don't even care how much the church as an entity has changed. He is not going to change his mind on what he thinks about Jesus just because 2,000 years have gone by. God is not going to change his mind on whether or not we must listen to Jesus just because 2,000 years have gone by. This has been God's testimony about Jesus from all eternity past. So if we say, well, but it's been a long time. Well, we have a long time to go until we get to eternity future. So 2,000 years is a blink of an eye. It's a speck of dust compared to all eternity past. If God didn't change his mind then, why would he change his mind now? Truth matters. That's why it's one of John's tests. Remember, that's what we've been learning. Three tests to know if you're a genuine believer. And again, it's not so he can point the finger and go, you're not, you're a loser. It's because he wants us to know. He wants us to have that assurance of our salvation so that we're not worried about, am I going to heaven? Are my sins forgiven? Do I know the Lord? He wants us to have the joy of knowing I am my beloved's and he is mine and I'm going to be with him forever so we can keep going deeper in our relationship with Him. Truth is one of the three tests. So my question to you this morning as the team comes up is, do you pass it? If you do, you say, I believe. I believe what the Bible says about Jesus. I believe God's record about His Son. All right? Then rejoice. God's at work in you. You're forever His. Keep going deeper with Him. But if you don't pass the test, say, I don't believe that or if you're fighting the Bible's testimony about Jesus, then you have real cause to be concerned. Because it says in Revelation chapter 21, verse 27, that whosoever loves and makes a lie will not be there. You do have reason for concern. So my encouragement to you this morning is stop fighting that. Stop leaning on your own understanding. You don't know everything. In fact, you and I know f- very little so how could you and I possibly know what is best for us? We can't. We're not the best determiners of what is best for us. In contrast to what, the fact that we don't know, God does know everything. And he loves you intensely. So much so that he stepped out of the perfection of heaven and into our mess to die for you. His plans are always what is best for you. And so won't you heed the Father's testimony? Won't you heed the Spirit's testimony? Because in Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, this is the Spirit's testimony. It says, and the Spirit and the bride say, come, come. Stop staying away. Let him who's thirsty, come. If you're thirsty, come. You want answers, come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. What do you have to do to to be saved? What do you have to do? You, You don't have to do anything to earn it. You need to confess Jesus as Lord. You need to recognize that I'm not a good person. I need a Savior, and I believe Jesus came and died for me. So, Lord, I want to follow you from now on. The Bible says if you do that, He'll give you the water of life for free. Now, John isn't done talking about God's testimony. He's got more to say, but we're out of time. So we'll talk about the rest of what he has to say in the next few verses next Sunday. Let's all stand. I'm going to pray right now, and in a moment, if you're here this morning and you don't pass the test, you've been fighting against God or you've been leaning on your own understanding, I want to give you an opportunity to repent and to place your trust in Christ. So as I pray, if you want to do that, I'm going to give you that opportunity. Please respond. So Lord, we thank you so much for your testimony here about Jesus. And Lord, Lord, we're so grateful that we can know that you haven't changed your mind. It's not something we have to figure it out on our own. We don't have to make it up as we go. We can look and we can see what you said and what you think. And therefore, we can know the real Jesus who really lived and really did things and really said things and, Lord, told us what we need to do. Thank you for that, Lord, and our desire is to follow that. We receive your testimony this morning. And with every eye closed and every head bowed, if you're here this morning and you're saying, I want to receive that testimony, I want to repent of my sins and trust Christ as my Savior, just lift your hand high because I'd like to pray with you as you make that decision this morning. Jesus said, if you confess me before man, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. So if that you want to make that confession this morning, just lift your hand high, and I'd like to pray with you as you're making that decision. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There is no other way. There is none righteous, no, not one. Anybody want to receive Christ before we close? Just lift your hand high. Well, Lord, we thank you so much for this good news, and we love you, and we give our lives to you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.